2 Peter chapter 1. Hey, last week we had a message, and I really believe God brought a message for our, for our ministry, for our church, that was, that was powerful. And it was powerful for my life, and um, the message was run to the... Come on, y'all. All right, forget 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's back up and do 1 Peter chapter 5 again. The message last week was run to the roar. Anybody want to try it? Roar. Nobody? Come on. What do you got, Gavin? No. Okay. So um, the, the idea was that Satan, as Peter tells us, is, is out in, in a nutshell to destroy your life. You have a real adversary. He knows he's going to hell and he wants to take as many of you with him as possible. And, and so the, the, the roar of the lion oftentimes is a hunting technique that the lion pack uses to push the, the prey into where the attacking lions are. And the old lion who roars, he, he's not in the best shape of his life. He's, he's past his prime and his teeth are falling out and his joints don't work like they used to. But, but he's been somebody and he's established and he's got the big body frame and the hair and the mane and he can roar. And so we said if we were looking at a, a, a gazelle, a something there that was, that was in the field, and, and the lion began to roar, and we wanted to help the gazelle, what would we tell it? We would tell it to run to the lion. Because as Satan shoots those darts of temptation into your life and my life, that, that in itself is not the sin. And Satan can shoot those darts into your life right here in church. You could be sitting in church and just got done worshiping the Lord from your heart and closing your eyes and seeing Jesus and singing the songs right to him. And, and then the next thing you know, you're having some dirty thought or some um, evil thought right here. And you're thinking, man, what a bum I am. I'm sitting in church and that's what's going through my head. And, and, and that's a temptation of Satan. And that in itself is not the sin. The sin is how we act upon that. The sin is is born out of that. But those are the fiery darts that Satan is constantly choosing. So the message is um, that that as as Satan attacks us, we do what, what Peter told us last week. And what James tells us the same thing is that if you resist the devil, he will what? Flee from you. Now, when the devil flees from you, does he stay gone all the time in your life? He comes back for a more opportune time, the Bible says. And that really the scary thing about Satan is that he has a specific temptation tailored to your life. Did you hear that? He, he has a specific strategy that's unique just for you to destroy your life. And the strategy that he works on your life, if he applied it to my life or Ovi's life, it wouldn't work. So he has something that's special for each one of us in his plan of attack. But as he fires those darts and as he as he's attacking us, we we never want to turn our back or run in fear because our back is where we don't have armor and where we're protected. And what we talked about last week, the idea of run to the roar. And I and I don't think I got a chance to get there last week, but I've been sharing with Lydia this week. Um, where we are in first Peter right now, every week I listen to the tape of my pastor, my pastor, who was our sending pastor back home. And, and I was listening to second Peter chapter, chapter one this week. And it just so happens it was February 4th, 2007, when pastor Gerald was in this section of the Bible, February 4th, 2007, coincidentally was Super Bowl Sunday. 
And, and on that particular Super Bowl, the Bears were playing the Colts. And my team was the Bears, so I made the, the, the sermon that Sunday. My friends went out. My friend Lee Wade, who was a, a, a Marine at the time, he, he painted my car with all this Colts stuff. And I've been a Bears fan my whole life. And so there was Lydia's car and my car in the church parking lot were decorated with, with Colts stuff and gear. And the Colts went on and won that Super Bowl. But Devin Hester took the opening kick back for a touchdown. And I was doing backflips. And anyways, that has nothing to do with football. In, in February of 2007, Lydia's mom, as many of you guys know, was in her eighth month um, after being diagnosed with, with stage four pancreatic cancer and given 30 to 60 days to live. She would, she would last 90 days from the diagnosis. She would go on and she would die in about four weeks from, from the day that this message was given. And, and he, was, he was sharing that she died in March of 07. And, and, and in that time, he was in, he was just finishing up First Peter and Second Peter where we are today. And I was listening to the message and, and remembering those days. And, and you know, that, that, that message of run to the roar, you know, it wasn't because Gerald taught that that week and Lydia picked up on it and, and she applied it as her mom passed away. But I can remember her running to the roar when her mom died. And I can remember, you know, and, and it's for those of you that have experienced death of a, of, a, of a loved one, usually it's at night when you begin to this depression and the, the fear. And I'm sure it can hit at all times. But for Lydia, it was very most difficult at night at bedtime. And she'd cry herself to sleep. But every night we would go to bed and, and she would put on Jeremy Camp, Give Me Jesus. That was her song. And there was there were several songs, but blaring at night and we're, we, you know, and and we would go to bed every night singing and praising the Lord to give me Jesus and, and just remembering and watching my wife run to the roar. And every time Satan beat her up and every time it was difficult, she began to praise Jesus. She began to praise the Lord and would praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And, and like James tells us that. If you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And basically the message last week in a nutshell is that when Satan tempts you and you turn it against him and you run to the roar and you praise Jesus when he hits you with depression, he's going to say at one point, he's going to do what James says. He's going to resist and flee from you because he's going to say, this is not working. It's not working. And every time she's depressed and every time I beat her up and every time I tell her she should go hit the bottle, she puts on worship music and praise music and begins to sing praises. And it's not working. I got to try something else. And I told you men, a common temptation for us men is lust. And to look upon a woman lustfully, as Jesus said. And, and, and every time you struggle with that temptation, if you stop and you pray for 15 other men in our church who may have the same struggle and the same temptation, that, that's running to the roar. That's, that's something where Satan is firing those darts in our direction. And he's going to realize in your life, when you run to the roar that it's not working, it's backfiring, and he will flee. Praise God. And don't get too excited because he's coming back. <laughs> but we, we have that victory. We have that, that temporary victory. Now, where we find ourselves in the second epistle of Peter. Now, let, let me um, say this is, this is Peter's version of John chapter 14, 15, and 16. This is Peter's version of Paul's second Timothy. Why? 
John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 were given in the last 48, 24 hours of Jesus's life. It was Jesus's crunch time message. It was the message that Jesus gave that was that was the last thing he was going to tell us and therefore probably pretty important. Remember at the end of John chapter 13, the last words are, let us arise and go from here. Where were they in John chapter 13? They were in the upper room where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. They left the upper room. And if you, if you look at the, the map of, of Jerusalem, on the um, east side of, of the Temple Mount is the place where the upper room was located. And so they would have traveled west. They would have passed the temple and, and the Temple Mount area. They would have headed down the Kidron Valley and then back up the other side onto the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you know, Jesus would begin to pray and, and he would begin to sweat, as it were, great, great drops of blood. The Lord would send his angels to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to minister to his, his, his stress. And, and, and it's at that time that he gives us John chapter 15, John chapter 16, John chapter 17. Paul, who was at the end of his missionary journey in 2 Timothy, gives us his final thoughts. Well, Peter here, this is the last thing that he's going to write. And this is Peter's crunch time message. Now, spoiler alert, I'll tell you what it's about. What Peter really wants to hammer home in this chapter is the power of the Bible, the power of the word of God in your life. Everybody say the power power. of the word of God. Come on, of the word of God in my life. Now say it like power. Um, that's how that's the only thing I got that's worth flexing. It's about the word of God. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the fact that Peter in his crunch time message really wants to tell you in the, about the power of the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Do do you guys get tired here in this church of hearing me tell, tell you that? I mean, does, do you feel like, well, doesn't he talk about anything else? Seems like he's just always talking about the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Well, I do talk about something else. I think I, hopefully I talk more about Jesus, but, um, but you know what? I, I, I don't, I don't cherry pick these things out of the scriptures. You, you guys know my style. I, I teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Last week we were in, in, in First Peter chapter 5. The next chapter in the Bible is Second Peter chapter 1. That's where we are today. Next week I'm going to be in Second Peter chapter 2. And, and when the Bible talks about it, I talk about it. So if it's talking about tithing and you came on Sunday morning and I hit tithing, I didn't point that at you and talk about it every week. I talked about it because it was dealt with in the scripture that week. If it's talking about temptation or sin or the word of God. And so that's, again, just where we find ourselves in the study today. Let's take a look at it. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So the term bondservant there is the way that Peter describes himself to you and me. Now, what's so powerful is that, is that Peter, as we really kind of unpacked last week, Peter never put himself above you or me. He puts us on level playing fields. He says, look, I'm just Peter. I'm not the Pope. I'm not anything special. I'm just like one of you. I'm a, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos. It's, it's a term from ancient Israel that, that if, if you were a slave... And every six years, 
the slaves would be set free in the seventh year. It was the system that God had set up in the Old Testament. Every seven sevens is, a, is 49 years, or in the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all the property would go back to its rightful owner in the law of Moses and the way that God set it up. And God set it up so wise and so smart so that there couldn't be Walmart and Microsoft and there couldn't be um, monopolies in this commercial system where one person ends up with everything. So God set it up that every 49 years, all of the property that was given to the 12 tribes of Israel would go back to their rightful owners. Well, the same was true of a slave. A slave was a slave for six years. And in the seventh year, he was to be set free unless he wanted to become a doulos. Or, or a slave by choice. And, and that's the description that the apostles make of themselves. They're a slave to Jesus Christ by choice. They're a bond servant of Jesus Christ by choice. And so they would take this bond servant or this slave. And, and in order to make him a doulos. The tradition was they would take his ear. And they would put it against the wooden doorpost of the house. And they would drive an awl through his, his ear. Which then would give him gauges. So you guys think your gauges are new and trendy? No, that, that's that's ancient Israel stuff there. That's where it came from. And, and anybody you saw walking around town with a gauge in their ear, you wouldn't think that they were. I don't know. What do you think when you see someone with gauges? They're punk, hip, what? I don't know. Um, but they you would think that's a, that you would understand that that's a bond servant. So you guys that have gauges, you can wear those proudly like yeah, I'm a bond servant. That means I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's why I did it. That's why my earlobes rub on my shoulders when I walk. Uh, But it's nothing new. And Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and this idea. You know the cool thing about a bondservant? And and, and, and when we apply that to Jesus and that we are, as Peter says, a bondservant to Jesus Christ. In, in, In ancient Israel... One of the things you have to understand is that for me, to, who was a slave, to choose to be a bondservant, the master would have to allow it as well. What if I was a, a slave that didn't work hard and was lame and was trouble all the time? He's looking forward to the six years so he could get rid of me. But he has to choose to keep me because he's then responsible for me. He has to feed me. He has to clothe me. He has to take care of me. I'm now like one of his kids in his house and and I'm there forever. And he's also accepting me and agreeing to take care of me. And all the promises that are promises for his house are then put on me. And in verse two, it says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus So we have these two, oftentimes we call them the Pauline um, epistle greetings because Paul oftentimes uses this same greeting, grace and peace. It's a biblical thing and the two always go together. And here Paul takes these two grace and peace and puts them together. Now, in in Christendom, in in the church, among people who identify themselves as as Christians or born again Christians, I'll tell you one of the one of the most difficult or one of the things we always have to be on our guard for because it's an enemy of the gospel is Christians who become self-righteous and legalistic Christians who don't have grace for other people because they themselves are better than everybody else. They don't smoke and chew and hang out with girls who do. And, and I can remember growing up in, in the ministry as a Bible college student and then as a young pastor. There was this phrase that, that, that my pastor from the pulpit would say all the time. And it just bugged me every time he said it. He would say, self-righteousness and legalism is a mask for sin every time. And I'd say, 
you don't have to say every time. There's got to be an exception to the rule. Like, it's not, nothing's every, every, you know, some, you know, like, why do you say every? Can't you say most of the time or some of the time? And then growing up and, and serving in the ministry in a big church for 20 years, I seen firsthand every time someone, someone had self-righteousness and legalism, it was, it was a cover for sin. Um, my, my pastor's son at 17 years old, got a girl pregnant in high school. I think that goes over in a big church and a big school. And I can remember there was a particular gentleman who was very self-righteous and better and, and, and very condemning and, and, and the farthest thing from grace about the situation and, and wanted the hammer and wanted the law and, um, and, and was just so disgusted by the whole thing and you know was, was just this self-righteous Christian and was so much better than everybody else. And, and on the outside, he seemed like he was too, man. This guy had his stuff together. How do you think that one turned out? Turned out to be the biggest creep. Left his wife. Turns out he was cheating on his wife. Had a pornography problem. And, you know, all this secret sin. And, 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 and just that was like the 27th time I'd seen it. And I'd be like, okay, every time. I'll, now I'm with you, Pastor. You know, every time. Legalism and self-righteousness is a mask for sin. And, and, and so often it's just, it, it is the case. When somebody has that air that they're better than you and, you know, they don't watch that program and they're more righteous and holy, oftentimes you find out that it's a... And here's the, here's the reality. Here's what I'm trying to say. Self-righteousness and legalism doesn't allow place in your life for grace. It, it, it removes grace. It replaces grace. And if you don't have grace, you're going to struggle as a Christian. And God wants for you to have grace. Now, Peter, who understood grace more than anybody? was Peter. You, you remember Peter and Judas. Now, for argument's sake, they, they, they were guilty of the same sin. They both betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. One denied him and one betrayed him. Now, obviously, on the level of their sin, I'm not putting Peter's sin and Judas's sin on the same level. Obviously, Judas's is not. But here's the difference. When, when Judas sinned, he, he did what? He went out and he hung himself. He committed suicide. And when Peter denied the Lord three times and they made eye contact in the courtyard, what does the Bible say Peter's reaction was? It says he went out and he wept bitterly and he had this brokenness of heart. And that, that deep, bitter weep of a brokenhearted person who's repentant. And, and, and he understood. And then when Jesus um, rose again and the women came to the tomb, what did Jesus say to the women? He, says, he said, tell, them, tell my disciples that I'm alive and Peter. Why did he single out Peter? Because Peter had left broken and Peter was, was weeping bitterly. And Jesus in grace reaches out and says, tell them that I'm alive and Peter and makes a special point to reach out to Peter personally. And then when Jesus was on the beach and he appeared on the beach and Peter jumps out of the boat after the resurrection and comes up to the water and Jesus pulls Peter aside. And he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he restores Peter and he pours out to Peter grace. And if anybody needed grace in their ministry and in their life, it was Peter. And then who went on, you know, a few days later at Pentecost and preached and 3000 souls were added to the kingdom It was Peter. 
because of the grace, because of the grace that God's shown him. And so in your life, and the thing is, you'll realize, you guys, the longer you walk with the Lord Jesus, and you'll see it in people's ministry. You know, it's funny, you can, you can watch Billy Graham's ministry, and you can watch him as a young, fiery preacher. And they used to call him the machine gun preacher, because that's how he would preach. And he'd be talking about communism, and Russia, and the Cold War, and all this political stuff, and this kind of, and it was all righteous stuff. But as you watch Billy Graham's career as he got older and more seasoned, it was always more seasoned with grace, more seasoned with grace, more seasoned with grace. And then towards the end of Billy Graham's ministry, he was so effective at working with all kinds of different denominations and people that loved Jesus across all kinds of aisles and was just so full of grace that he set the example for grace. And then Peter goes on in the uh, verse number three, and he says, and his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by the glory and virtue. Now I'm going to start preaching y'all, but listen, just like Francis Chan said, you know, we don't have to actually do the things Jesus said. We just got to memorize them and know what they are in the Greek and study them and don't have to do them. But listen, let's take today in Peter's crunch time words and, and let's really listen to this. Let me, let me, let me put this on you and see if you can receive this in your life. Listen to what Peter just said. Now, if somebody doesn't go, Ooh, amen, then we got a problem. All right. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. <laughs> That's your cue. Amen. Preacher, brother, I'll get a towel and start patting my forehead if I have to. The, God, the word of God just says that God's given you all things that you need that pertain to life and godliness. All things. All things. You know, when we see this all things, immediately we have to go, man, what is, how does that translate from the Greek? What does this word all things mean? And we go and we study. And you know the interesting thing about the word all in the Greek, as you guys know? All means all. All things. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And here the word of God says that you have all things that you need. You know the whole adage, if it's new, it ain't true. If it's true, it ain't new. Now, now that applies here in that, that there's nothing new that we need. Now, some of you, I, I don't have a better example because I, I just need to find a better example, sermon example. But this is the only one I got. It's 20 years old, but roll with it. Um, you guys ever heard of the Toronto Blessing? The Toronto Blessing was a was a church movement that was happening and people from all over the you know the United States and the world were flying in to go to these church services and and it was this thing that the Holy Spirit was doing where they were laughing in the spirit and they would have these church services and the Holy Spirit would fall and people would laugh uncontrollably and roll around on the ground and um, it's called the Toronto blessing and people were going from all over to, to go. And then, and then when that wasn't big enough and exciting enough, then they, they went on to the kid, you not, it turned into gold dust from heaven going into your teeth and gold, the gold dust and gold flakes and all this weird stuff that had to beat the stuff before. And it was all this people seeking the new and, and, and the, the latest and the greatest. And here the Bible tells us you don't need any of that stuff. Beware of that stuff. Beware of if you have all things pertaining to life and godliness. You don't need nothing else. And in verse 4, it says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, a couple things. The, do you, how many of you guys remember the Menendez brothers? 
I'm going back now. I'm, I'm stuck in 20 years ago. I started the sermon in February of 07. And now the, the, the Toronto blessing. And we're just going just gonna to stick with the 20 year ago theme. The Menendez brothers, if you're, you're not aware, were two brothers who went into the living room where their mom and dad were on the couch, masked, and, and with 12-gauge shotguns, and they pumped 40 shots into their mother and their father's face with a 12-gauge shotgun at point-blank range. 40 times. Was it number 40? It was at least 40. 40 shots into their face um, with a 12-gauge shotgun. Now, they, they, they claim, they said that the, um, the reason was because their father had been molesting them and they were afraid it was going to happen again. The reason why I bring this up today is um, Luke was flipping through the channels the other day and he likes to watch those like, uh, you almost got away with it and whodunits and whatever murder mystery solving shows. And so um, he, he was on one of those channels and I noticed it. It was the Menendez brothers and I remember the case. And it was supposed to be like the 20 years later, what now? And it's supposed to be the revealing of something that they, they wouldn't say 20 years ago that now they're going to come out and say. And so I told Luke to tape it and I haven't watched it yet, so I can't tell you what they said. But um, the whole world knows better, right? We knew the real reason. Their mom was not accused of molesting them or hurting them, and yet they shot her in the face with a shotgun 40 times. But we all knew, and they tried to claim that it was fear of, of what their father was doing to them. But we all knew what the real reason was behind the Menendez brothers' crime, which was, was greed. It was the corruption of the lust of this world. And they had spent a million dollars in the first month after their parents' death. And, and, and yet, listen to what Peter tells for you guys. By which you have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know that case? Now, if I asked it a poll right here, how many of you could could take a shotgun and shoot your mom in the face 40 times with it? You guys would be appalled. Who could do that? How could you even ask that? that? Even the thought of shooting my mom in the face with a shotgun is appalling. And yet, men are capable of doing such things. Are they cut from a different cloth than you are? Do they have different blood, different organs, different, different creator than you do? The, the, the difference is you have the Holy Spirit and God who has kept you and escape from the corruption of the lust of this world. And let me tell you something. You are very capable of terrible atrocities such as this or worse if you let your heart go in that direction. And it's one slippery slope on top of another on top of another. And human beings just like you and I can end up doing those types of things and much worse if we allow it. But by the grace of God. By the mercy of God, you have escaped those things through Jesus Christ. And there's only one way people are capable of doing those terrible things. It's demonic and it's turning yourself over to the lies of Satan enough, enough. And your conscience gets seared with a hot iron over and over and over again. But don't think that apart from Jesus, you don't have the capability of doing some terrible and despicable and scantless things in your life and it and it's necessary and it's a blessing that, that that the lord has kept us from that the lust of the world in verse five it says 
But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness. For if these things are yours and abound to you, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we go again, y'all. You're missing your cues. Um, so... A couple weeks ago, it was like the Tony Robbins church service where I was going to give you the key to be successful and prosperous. From the Bible, in Joshua chapter 1, Psalms chapter 1, two promises in your life of prosperity and success. Who wouldn't sign up for that, we said. If you, if you take the word of God, it says in Joshua chapter 1 and in Psalms chapter 1, and you meditate upon it day and night... And be careful to do all that's in it. You will have prosperity and good success. Well, here, Peter's going to add to that. Listen to this. This is what's available for you guys this morning. You guys just got to keep coming to church around here. Prosperity and success a couple weeks ago. Listen, you will be, verse 8, you will be neither what? Barren nor unfruitfulness. So he's, 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 he's promising you abundance and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you take these these virtues and these lists and you apply them. Let's go through them in verse five for this. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. So really pouring your heart into these things. Listen, add to your faith virtue. Virtue being a virtuous person, doing things that are right, things that are are with integrity, things where you're not um you know, cheating on your taxes, where you're not lying, where you're not cutting corners, where you're not putting vulgar things in your mind, in your heart of virtue and of knowledge to knowledge, self-control. The word knowledge in the Greek word is gnosis. It's, it's where the word, the Gnostics get it from Gnostic or pursuit of knowledge. Now to know here, listen, for us as Christians, this is the most important fundamental philosophy of Christianity, that it's about knowing Jesus intimately and personally. When um, in, in this year, right in this time, 2007, when um, the, the month, a couple months before Cindy, uh, Lydia's mom passed away, President George W. Bush was making an appearance on the 29 Palms Marine Corps base. And he was there for something. He was going to be talking to the troops. And he was going to stay and attend a church service at the chapel service on the Marine base in 29 Palms. So our church got a call. And, we were, and, we, and they asked if we would bring our worship team out to, to 29 Palms to lead worship for the service the president was going to attend. And I can remember Pastor Gerald called our, our worship pastor and he said, Hey, listen, I can't tell you why or what right now, but I want the A team. I don't want the backup worship team. I want the A team. Um, to play at 29 Palms on such and such a date. And so the worship pastor's wife, she got online and she checked the president's itinerary and saw that he was going to be in 29 Palms. So I guess it wasn't that big of a secret, but she figured it out. Uh, um, two years prior, there was a Marine in our, in our church. His name was uh, Major Don Rao, or Major Rao. His wife is Don Rao, Major Rao. And Major Rao um, died in Iraq in 2004 when his Humvee went over an IED. And President Bush was at the service uh, when Major Rao was um, was memorialized. Then um, Don was, you know, you, you had to have your name on a list to be able to go to the service. And I didn't rank, so I didn't get to actually go. But our worship team did. And Don Rao 
was at the service. And President Bush, as he went down the aisle, he stopped on her aisle. And he looked down the aisle and he recognized her. And he called her by name. And he asked her how she was doing. And then he went up and he took his seat. And, you know, whether he, he, he remembered her, he made a point to stop. And maybe he had some PR handler at the back. And I'm sure he needs help with those things that told him, hey, that's Don Rao. Her husband died several years ago. You were at the service. She's sitting over there. And he made a point to stop and, and to reach out to Don and ask her how she was doing. Then she, you know, but Don didn't know him personally. She didn't like call him on the cell phone later and say, hey, you want to play golf later? Where are you going to lunch? Let's go to lunch. There, there wasn't a, a personal relationship beyond, you know, but with Jesus, it's not just to know of him and, and know who he is, but to actually have his cell phone number, actually be able to invite him into your life to be a practical part of your life, to know the Lord intimately and personally. And then he says self-control. Anybody need the Greek on that? Control yourself. Shut your mouth. I wanted to say something else. I'm not going to. Perseverance. So perseverance is a character of continuing. Keep swimming. Keep on swimming. Keep on swimming. Keep on trying. Keep on. The Bible says do not grow weary in doing good. Okay. Especially for you young people. Do not grow weary in doing good. To perseverance, godliness. Godliness is godlikeness. You want to know what God is like? How do you know what God is like? How do you know what the Father is like? You look at Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment, the example of what God the Father is like. And Jesus lived to set an example for us of the Father and what the Father is like. And then he goes on. And it says. Where are we at? What verse? Brotherly kindness. I need a little bit of that right now. Brotherly kindness. Now, listen, um, you got to be nice to people. I don't know why that's foreign for us as Christians. Like, I want to be like rude and like slap you to tell you to be nice. Cause like, Hey, you, you gotta be nice to people if you're a Christian. And then the whole idea of kindness. And I know, I know some of you guys, especially maybe the girl, well, I guess girls could struggle with it too, but I know some of you roughnecks in here, you know, you have a job and you're the big bad boss on the, especially, you know, on my background and, 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 you know, being in a church and ministering to a bunch of guys that, that live their lives on a Marine base every day. And, you know, I was out there a couple of times. I was out there one time and the, um, the master sergeant was, was on, was out. And, and one of these young Marines walked by the master sergeant and didn't greet him. And, oh my gosh, this guy was like, ears were red and that's an occupational hazard. You know? Cause he didn't greet him when he went by. And like, so maybe you live in that community or your work is that way or your life is that way. And you think that there's this, like, I don't know, bad you get if you're a jerk or something, you know, but listen, if you're a Christian, God wants you to be kind. He just wants you to be nice to people. It's not hard. He tells you multiple times. It's a staple. Add it to your life. And if, and if the goal is neither barrenness nor unfruitfulness, you'll add these things to your life. In verse 9, it says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Don't forget that, that you, were, you, know, you, you were cleansed of your old sins. You know why I have grace? You know what helps me have grace and compassion for other people? When I realize what a, what a schmuck I am. When you realize and just know that what a schmuck you are. Now, if you think highly of yourself, higher than you ought, then, then yeah, you're going to have a hard time showing grace and being kind to other people. But when you realize who you are and, and where you failed and how much grace God has shown you and how special you're not, 
then, then, then you realize you just, you just like everybody else, you rely on God's grace and you, you, it helps you treat other people kind and it helps you to, to understand. And that's what Peter says here, that don't forget that you have not forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. What? Somebody say never stumble. Man, like sometimes, like and a little stumble here and there. Never stumble. This is another promise. It's another, um, where are you stumbling? Where are you falling down? Listen, if, if, if you're stumbling, if you're falling down, if your marriage is struggling, if your life is struggling, listen, it's, it's, it's oftentimes not because you don't have the tools. It's not because God, God's word hasn't given you the answer. It's because either you're not seeking those answers and looking them up, or you're not applying the solutions that God's given you to your life. You know, for Lydia and I in our marriage, we, when we fight, which is very, very, very often, <laughs> seldom, whatever, you know, it's, it's not because we don't know what's right. It's not because we just haven't learned the tools. We know what we're supposed to do. I, I know how to have a good married life. I know that if I love my wife like Christ loved the church and I make her feel like she's number one and special in my house, that my marriage is going to go good. And if my marriage isn't going good and we're struggling and we're not getting along, it, it, it starts there because she's not feeling that way. And, and then it's starting to snowball. And it's not a matter of having the tools or, or knowing what the tools are. It's a matter of applying them once I have them. And, and here we have so many of these just amazing promises like last week, like I was floored, really, like the whole thing, like God's word tells you and me how we can have success and prosperity. And yet we don't apply it to our lives on a daily basis. We study it. We studied it last week. How many of you guys since that sermon have read the Bible every morning and every night? A couple of you. Sweet. And I bet you got success and prosperity. But the rest of the rest of us knuckleheads, we 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 study it. We can repeat it in the Greek, but we don't actually do it. Um, but, but here again, you guys, just, just, a, just a smile on your face promise that there's some things here where God says, hey, listen, these are things where you, that, to me, that's like never stumble. Wow. And then he goes on and he says, for so an entrance will be supplied to all your abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here, Peter, he takes the entire conversation before he's going to flip gears in verse number 12. And he just does this. He just points you all to heaven. Do you realize that your life is about heaven? Your life here is about heaven. Now, there's no comparison, so we can't, but I'm going to try anyways. The, the time that you're going to spend here on earth compared to the time that you're going to spend in eternity. What would that be like? How could we compare the two? How do you compare... 70 years, as the Bible says, 70 years given to a man, anything beyond that is a blessing. How do you compare 70 years to eternity? 70 trillion. You can't, right? There's no comparison. And so we'll just call it 70 trillion for argument's sake. So let me ask you really quick. Would you rather be really happy and comfortable and, and, and do really well for 70 years or sacrifice 70 years for 70 trillion years? Which one would you pick? Pretty simple math, right? Now, now the, I remember my kids, you guys are not eight-year-old boys, but seven-year-old, six-year-old boys. But when, at my house, when I had seven and six and eight-year-old boys, I was trying to communicate this concept to them. And so the best way I could think to do that was um, a pirate's treasure. You guys ever seen a pirate's treasure? 
Like to me, that's manly. You see this big chest, it's open, it's huge. It's got gold and goblets and chains and rubies and all these jewels like flowing over it onto the ground around it. And, and I would tell the boys like, if you had that and that was yours and somebody wanted to trade you your pirate's chest for a booger, is, is that a good deal? Like a hairy, nasty one? Would you? <laughs> like that wasn't necessary, huh? Would, would you? Would you make that trade? No, Dad, that's gross. Why would you say that? Ooh, no way. I would never trade my treasure for a booger. But you would trade seventy years for seventy trillion. Or would you take the seventy years that God's given you here to invest? in the life that it's really about in your eternal home. Peter, in a moment, he's going to go on and he's going to start describing as Paul does as well. And I love when the, the, the writers and the Holy Spirit is directed in the same way. He's going to start describing it as a tent. Why is this body a tent biblically? Because it's temporary. And I'm only going to be in it for a temporary time. We don't invest in a tent. How many of you guys take your most expensive, nicest decorations in your house? Maybe one of you guys have like a Rembrandt that's worth like a hundred grand in your house hanging in the living room. How many of you guys, when you pack the tent in the truck and get ready to go camping for the weekend, grab the Rembrandt, set up the tent and hang the Rembrandt in the tent for the weekend? Nobody? You guys, you guys get your wrenches out and take the kitchen sink down and bring it with you and put it in the tent for the weekend? No, we don't invest and, and put value in something that we're going to stay in for a weekend. Those things belong in the house. Rembrandt belongs in the house. The nice sink and faucet belong in the house. And, and those things that are eternal, that's heaven. That's our home in heaven where those things belong for eternity. And so, and so Peter, by direction of the Holy Spirit, not just randomly here, takes us and he just, he just constantly just does that little thing that we should do as Christians. Somebody say amen. Just points people back to heaven. Just points people back to heaven. Now, some people think, oh, heaven is too lofty an idea. Like, but you know what? We have to, you guys. We have to continually remind you. We have to make it a reality for you that, that you're going to spend eternity in heaven. And this life is about investing. Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in where? In the stock market? In your savings account? Where did he say to store up your treasures? In heaven, where thieves can't break in and steal, and where moths can't um, eat them, and where rust can't destroy them. And so, the, 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 the idea, you guys know that old analogy? That we, we tell it like a joke, but actually it fits biblically. You know, one guy goes to heaven, and he's got a mansion, and a big, huge, sprawling house, hanging gardens, and the other guy's got like a couple pieces of sticks leaned together, kind of like shack, because he didn't earn it. Well, well that, that's kind of a joke and not really the way it's going to play out. But Jesus did say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and, and in my father's house are many what? Mansions or dwelling places. And so in these mansions, that is the idea. Send up your treasure. So the idea is that, is that when you do something on this side of eternity to invest in heaven, that's about heaven, you give, you serve, you do something to the Lord. It's like you send up a two by four. You sent up a 12 foot, 16 foot door that's this thick that, you know, and Jesus is just all Jesus is doing is as he's preparing a place for you. He's just hanging the stuff and putting together the, the building materials that you give him. So if you got up there and you're the guy with the two sticks that lean together, don't worry, you can come hang out at my wife's house. It's going to be big. 
Um, but 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 that that's that's the biblical idea is that we store up treasures in heaven and, and, and Jesus will use those things to build for us uh, an eternity in heaven. And there is there is a, a real biblical truth that there are levels of reward in heaven. That's that's just biblical. Verse number 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though, you know, and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in the tent, to stir you up by... Somebody read the last two words of verse 13 for me. Reminding you. Did Peter say by telling you something new? He didn't say, hey, I got this new thing. I got to tell you before I die. No, nothing new. It's just stuff that you know and, and just the power of reminding you. You know, the, the thing is, when, when I came here to Tooele... You know, I had a fresh start. And one of the things that's happening in churches all over the nation here, and they're exploding and God's doing good things. And I love a lot of what's happening there. But one of the, one of the fears and one of the things that's not yet played itself out far enough is, is just the fruit and longevity. But it is this idea that every time you come to church, it just has to be exciting and new and fresh and something that, that you're not going to get anywhere else. And, you know, in, in one of these churches just recently, at the end of the service, confetti fell out of the ceiling. I'm not kidding. The whole church, just like if you go to a big arena and, the, you know, and the Texans beat the USC in the Rose Bowl and the confetti falls out of the stadium. And so confetti is falling out of the ceiling and they're celebrating, which cool. But then how do you beat that next week? Dancing midgets? What do you do? That, that's bad, huh? Sorry. <laughs> um, we'll edit that one. Um, how, about, how, how do you, how do you beat it the following week? Like, and, and then, and then there is this, there is something about you that wants what's new. And Peter here says, look, I'm just going to remind you what you already know. Do you guys remember a couple years ago, we, we, were, we were studying the book of Revelation. We're full on, fully immersed in biblical prophecy. We're, we're at the culmination of the, the Shemitah, the super Shemitah, the year of Jubilee, the fourth um, and final blood red moon. Tons of stuff going on prophetically. We're, we're studying all this stuff. And, and to prepare for all this stuff, I'm, I'm looking for resources online. CERN, um, CERN. Is, is about to fire the Hadron Collider and, and fire it up again to try to reproduce the Big Bang Theory and open up a gateway to another dimension, probably hell. So all this stuff is going on, and I'm, I'm, I'm studying it, and I find this one particular ministry. And it's kind of offline a little bit, but the big deal, and the guy is spot on with all this stuff. His research is impeccable. He's done his homework, and I'm, 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 I'm using his material. I'm studying from it. I'm presenting some of it. And, and then when you watch the sermon, at the end comes on this infomercial. And it's about a, about a two-minute long commercial selling this product that he has that's his DVD starting at ninety nine ninety nine. And I can remember watching this and thinking to myself, Oh man, I got to have that. And like, I was nervous. I, 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 if I don't get it from this guy, I'm not going to learn it or know it. I got to buy this. I got to have it. And before the infomercial was over, the Holy Spirit showed up and just gave me the hugest check in my spirit. Stop. You have everything you need pertaining to godliness in life. You, you need nothing else. And as soon as I started feeling like I had to have it, and this is the only guy that can give it to me, I turned it off. Stop watching his program. Stop, stop listening to his messages. Stop, stopped letting his opinion sway what I believed. 
Because that, that feeling was a check in the spirit that was wrong. And listen, if you ever go to a church, if you ever have that feeling that you have to have what this person has. And now listen, this stuff is specifically and calculated, packaged in such a way that when you, when you hear this stuff, you have to have it. And some of these churches are exploding because there's, there's this real calculated message that goes forth that you got to get it right here and I'm the only one that can give it to you. And, and yet... That's just not what the word of God says. You know, you know what he says? He says, look, just things that you already know. When that Toronto blessing thing was going on, people would call us and go, hey, what do you think? Always the same answer. Here's what I think. Go to a church where they're teaching the Bible. I know, I know, I know. But what do you think? Go to a church where they're teaching the Bible. They call back six months later and there'll be new development. And it's gold dust now. What do you think? Go to a church where they're teaching the Bible. Hey, the pastor went and our, our, our pastor and all his crew, he's taking the whole group from our church over there to go be a part of it. What do you think? Find a church. It's teaching the Bible. A year later. Hey, our pastor just left with the secretary and stole all the money out of the building fund. Find a church. It's teaching the Bible. And, and, and not new. Nothing new, you know. And, and sorry for, for your luck, you know, but... The, the power to change your life is in the word of God. The power to change your life is in the truth and consistency. The best, um, we had a K through 12 school that I was a part of. I was an assistant administrator there. I wore a lot of different hats. was an assistant pastor, oversaw children's ministry. One of the things I did was I helped in the administration of the K through 12 school. And my favorite part of being a part of the school was high school graduation every year. Because some of these kids would be with us since kindergarten. Some of them was there, um, you know, for lots of years. And they weren't always nice. And it wasn't always easy. And, and, and at high school graduation, we um, got to, they, they would finally say what you just wanted to hear for, for 12 years. You know, I'm thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm thankful for such and such teacher that made an impact in my life. And because our school was, was small, Lydia graduated from there. Bronson was in the early service. He graduated from um, Joshua Springs as well. There was about 25 in his class. How many was in your class? Seven in Lydia's class. And um, so they, they all got to say a little something. And we, we would have the commencement speech every year. And we would try to find the biggest, baddest name in, in commencement speakers that we could find for, for our ministry. We had the commandant of the Marine base come a couple times, two different um, commandants who spoke at the, at, the, at the graduation speech and different people. Well, one year, I think we were a little desperate and we couldn't find anybody. So we had our, one of our English teachers do it. His name was Mr. Wilson, and he wasn't with us anymore, but he had been a huge staple of our ministry and made a wonderful impact on young people's lives for a lot of years in the English department. He took a job with the university, and he was, he was currently working at the university, and we asked him to come back and, and do the commencement speech. Now, you guys can thank Mr. Wilson to this day why when you ask me how I'm doing, I say I'm well. And I think it's important that you say well, and if you say good, I always, I always say, well, you're not good in English, but um, hopefully you're doing well. Because that was a thing that, that Mr. Wilson had just hammered into all of us for years through the English department at the school. And so anyways, Mr. Wilson comes back and he shares the commencement speech at high school graduation. And he said, you know, as I got ready to prepare for this speech, I struggled because I really wanted to tell the kids this, this message. And he said, but yet I had told them so many times. So I thought, well, I can't tell them that. I've already told them. And, and, and then I really wanted to give them this message, he said, but I, I had told him that for years and years and years. And so, so I was, I was struggling with what to share. And then I decided, I know I'll share this with them. And he said, I had also shared that with them. He said, then this light came on and God spoke to me 
And God said, tell him again, tell him again. And he came and he went through and he told him again. And it was the most powerful commencement speech I ever heard. It was the best, made the most impact to this day. And it was simply tell him again. And you know, a lot of the Bible is tell him again. A lot of the study of what we do, a lot of the the Bible teaching, it's tell him again. It's stuff that we know. And that's what Peter says here. Verse number 15. I'm sorry. I was going to try to skip him. I hope you guys didn't know, but um, 13, you're like, go ahead, go ahead, pastor. We won't mind. No, just kidding. 13. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this what? Verse 13, 10. We already talked about that. To stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this what? Tent, temporary. As our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So it's kind of funny that, that Peter says deceased. Now, there's three points I want you to write down in a couple of scriptures in this next session. Now, now, this is the part where Peter is really going to hammer and talk about the word of God. So as we close in the next five minutes, I'm going to finish these last couple of verses in five minutes. And we're going to hammer home something that you hear a lot here is about the power and the importance of the word of God and how it affects and goes into your life. Rick, you're hanging in there tough, man. You're doing good. Five more minutes. Rick got off work at six o'clock this morning and he's here at church. So he told me if he sleep, he said, he said, I could sleep through your sermon with the best of them. I said, go ahead and try. I'll put you on blast. I said, I'll have everybody sneak out while you're sleeping. And then when you wake up, you'll think you missed the rapture. So Peter, the first point Peter's going to give here in verse 15. Listen, people die. And this is the phrase I want you guys to repeat with me a couple times. But the word of God remains. Okay, you got that? But the word of God remains. You ready? But the word of God remains. And then, and then the next point Peter's going to make a few verses later, he's going to say, experiences change, but the word of God remains. And then the last point Peter's going to make in this last section is that things are going to get darker, but the word of God remains. And so here we have brings us to um, verse 16. It says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his ministry. You know, it's so funny, this term cunningly devised fables, which Peter's going to go on and address later because it's what the critics were accusing him and the disciples of these cunningly devised fables. But yet Peter's going to give a little bit of his own bio to say, hey, listen, This is who I am and this is what I'm saying and this is why you can and should be able to receive this message from me. And he's going to brag a little, not brag, but he's going to give you his credentials. But, you know, the funny thing is with the religions today and some of these things that I hear, they are are the, the worst cunningly devised fables you've ever heard. Some of the isms and schisms and cults. I read some of the stuff and I hear some of the things they believe and I go, I go, dude, that's like a bad Disney movie. If Disney made this into a movie, it would be a terrible movie. Nobody would go and watch it. It's terrible. The storyline's terrible. It's just bad. It's a cunningly devised fable. And, but Peter says that, that these were not, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, just another place of, of hundreds in the New Testament where it says that Jesus Christ is coming. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who do you want to believe? Do you want to believe somebody that literally handled somebody who walked, somebody who talked, somebody who saw 
with his own eyes Jesus go into heaven? Or somebody that was born in 600? Or somebody that was born in 1800? Or somebody that was born today? Or in our century, in our lifetime? And so, so these are, are where Peter is, is giving himself a credential that he, he was an eyewitness. He was there and he makes testimony of these things. I saw Jesus. And then he says in verse 17, For he received from God the Father with honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his voice with, which came from heaven when we were with him on, this, on the holy mountain. Peter's making reference here to what? The Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. You know, to be honest, listen, when I first read the, the Mount of Transfiguration story, I never got it. I, I just didn't understand it. And then I even thought, Lord, if a non-believer reads this, they're going to get confused by this. This whole story is kind of weird. Like all of a sudden one day, Jesus says, hey, James, John and Peter, come here. I want to, you know, we're going to go up on this mountain, just the three of us. And they go up there and all of a sudden Jesus transforms into his glorified body, his heavenly body. And Elijah and Moses show up. And, and then Peter is in, in perfect fashion, puts his foot in his mouth. And the Lord shows up and tells Peter to shut up and listen to his son. And, and I don't know, I just, I just didn't get kind of it for, forever. But it, it made such an impact on Peter's life. And he mentioned it in chapter 5. We talked about it last week because Peter mentioned it. He's mentioning it here again as a part of his credential to tell you what he wants to tell you. And basically what he wants to tell you is that the word of God is true. That the word of God is infallible. That the word of God is trustworthy. That the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Able to divide bone and marrow. And Peter's just going to give testimony to the word of God. And he gives a little bit of his credentials. But the whole thing is it had a huge impact. And then Peter's going to make a most profound statement about that um, experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's there. He sees the Lord in his glorified body. And the Lord shows up and speaks. Coincidentally, the Lord spoke. Um, the Father showed up twice in Jesus' life and proclaimed that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Once on the Mount of Transfiguration. Anybody know where the other one was? Besides my wife? You can't answer. She even told you the answer at his baptism. And so twice the Lord shows up and speaks this to G about Jesus and to Jesus. And so then listen, listen why Peter brings this up in the point that he makes. And it says um, in 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter is saying that experience of, of being there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that that the word of God is more powerful and, and more effective in his life than even that. It's pretty profound what Peter says. Who, who here's quiz time? You guys ready? Wake up. We're almost done. What, what group of people in human history was witness to more miracles and, and signs of God than any other group in all of human history? Anybody? The children of Israel in the wilderness, right? Nobody saw more miracles and experienced more firsthand miracles and signs than the nation, than the children, the people that left Egypt. I mean, how about, how about the Red Sea? How many, have any of you guys ever seen the Red Sea part? And you went through on dry land, and then the Egyptian army came in, and God buried the Egyptian army? Cloud of fire by night just leading you which way to go, smoke in the day. 
You wake up in the morning and God forms perfect bread on the ground every day so you can eat. You get hungry for meat and He just brings the quail in knee high and you just club them and, and eat some quail. I mean, not, not to mention the ten plagues, that you lived through the ten plagues, that, that you saw your sandals didn't wear out for 40 years, that you saw the nation of Israel saw more miracles and, and happenstance, water, how many of you guys ever seen water just come out of a rock? Nobody. But did, did the children of Israel, did it just miraculously, supernaturally? I mean, were they just the most powerful, blessed, used people where they just had victory and just, just owned it because of those experiences? They all died schmucks. Every one of them died a loser. Every one of them wandered through the wilderness and God just has finally just said, okay, I'm just going to sit back and wait for you all to die because I can't use any of you. You're all going to die and the next generation is going to go in. And God just sat back and waited for them to die. That's how they ended up. You'd think with all these miracles that... that, that so listen, that, those things are not as powerful in changing lives and in having victory as the Word of God. As the Word of God in your life. And that's what Peter's telling us. And that's the conclusion Peter made here. It's really powerful. In verse 19 he says, and we're almost done, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So it's going to get darker, but the word of the Lord remains. Listen, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 20 and verse 21 is one of two or three places biblically that we have the most profound statements for the word of God itself. The other one is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 2 Timothy 3.16. In 2 Timothy 3.16, you guys can remember 3.16, right? John 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. By who? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good, good work. In Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. But my word will by no means pass away. And so that, that's the, the message that Peter's giving us. It's the word of God. Now, I, I've, not, I've not heard this argument before until you know recently and and i hear it often and i and i talk to people often and i hear that that the bible has been corrupted and that you can't trust the bible and and people in your life are constantly attacking the bible And, and and it's just a slippery slope that goes on and on because if the bible is corrupted and some verses are good and some are not who which one of you let me ask which one of you gets to be the one who decides which verses are good and which ones are bad anybody want to volunteer i think i will i'll take that job hey no i don't like that one eh, that one's no good oh yeah i like that one you, you you have to become god or you get to become god in order to to decide what's true and what's not when the bible says that all scripture is god breathed that, that, that God didn't make a mistake in bringing us the canon or the word of God that we have today. 
It's infallible. Some say, oh, well, men got their hands on it. And men gathered in this room, which is true, under the direction of King James in the 1500s, and, and they messed it up. So they were in room A, and they got it wrong. I'm thinking, and that's a problem for God? Maybe God could have put some different men in room B. And they would have got it right. Because he's God. And if I was God, and any God worth serving is able to preserve his own word. And if God can't preserve his word, we got a problem. And, and that whole argument. But you know what? You know, what was the first temptation of Satan? What was the very first words ever recorded out of Satan's mouth? Hath God really said? The very first temptation and thing out of Satan's mouth was to attack the word of God. Why? Because you, you, you have to attack the word of God if you want people to deviate or, or get away from it or what's true. And so from the very beginning, Satan's attack is upon the word of God. And if I came out today and I wanted to tell you some weird, awful stuff that, that, that didn't, I would have to attack the word of God. And that's been Satan's plan and his ploy from day one is to attack the word of God. And yet the word of God is, is infallible. The word of God is, is good for correction and, and proof and instruction and righteousness in your life. And it's the word of God that the Bible says, if you meditate on it day and night, it'll change your life. Amen? Let's stand. As you guys are standing, I want to read one more verse to you. In Hebrews, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse of Hebrews, listen to this. It says, God, who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made all the worlds. So God, who spoke in times past through prophets, today speaks to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we do a simple Bible study, right? Some of these verses, I, I would encourage you to know and memorize. John chapter one, verse one says in the beginning, God, no, that's Genesis one, one <laughs> says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then you go down to verse 14 and it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and so Jesus is the word. And I know that concept is a little bit foreign that Jesus is the word, but that's what God says. You know, the Bible also says that God is love. He doesn't have love or show love. He is love. And, and yet of his son, he says that that his son is the word. Jesus is the word. And, and here and in Hebrews, it tells us that God has chosen to speak to you and me through his son. Do you know why we're Christians? You know what makes us Christians and, and doesn't make everybody else and why other people don't qualify for the label Christian? Because our revelation comes from Jesus Christ and his word and only from Jesus Christ and through his word. And, and it's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's the word of God that will change your life and my life. It's Jesus and knowing Jesus through the word of God. And so, yes, the word of God is powerful, but don't get it twisted. We miss everything as, as we go into the word, if we don't see Jesus, as we see the word, if everything is not Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in your heart and my heart, let's pray. 
Father God, we come before you, Lord Jesus, and we, we thank you that it is Jesus, that the word of God, and when I say it's the word that changes our lives, and it's the word, it's the word, it's the word, we, we know that that word is you, Jesus, and that we're not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, we're Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, we, we pray, Father, that, that it is Jesus, that it's Jesus in our lives, and Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here this morning who, who's never asked Jesus Christ to come into their heart to be their Lord and Savior, that, Lord, right now they would make their peace with you. As simple as praying in your heart. And if you're in here this morning, just, just pray in your heart this simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean in your blood. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We have one last song. And then uh, make sure you guys uh, see... Uh, Jacob and Christina on the way out. God bless you guys. Love you guys. Hopefully we'll see you guys back tonight for Valentine's banquet.